Nearly 400 years ago, on the 19th of February, 1616, the Holy Office in Rome submitted two propositions to its theological experts for assessment. They were dealing with a scientific challenge. Here were the two propositions. One, that the sun is the centre of the world and it is immovable. In other words, the sun stands still. Two, that the earth is not the centre of the world, nor immovable, but it moves, the whole of it moves, rotating daily. These were the two big challenges uh, facing the Roman Catholic Church. And five days later, the theologians announced their conclusions after rubbing their beards for four or five days. They were unanimous. They declared that the first statement, that the sun was immovable, was foolish and absurd philosophically, and it was also heretical. They felt it went against the teaching of the Bible and the history of the church. And they also kicked the second proposition out of the park. So the Roman Catholic Church officially declared against Copernicus and against Galileo, who had defended the Copernican theory of motion of the heavenly bodies. In other words, the idea that the sun was still and the planets went round it, including the earth. Yet how many people today would agree with Copernicus and Galileo? Now I don't mention this today to start a conversation about the relationship between science and theology. But it is a very striking picture of the relationship between us and God. Who's at the centre and who is going around? It's important for us to know who is at the centre of the universe, isn't it? And here's the thing. Naturally, we all tend to operate as if we are the centre and God should revolve around us. We think that this is the way to make life work. If only I could be free to be at the centre of my own personal universe with God revolving around me as my personal assistant, then I can make life perfect. But that is the equivalent of arguing that the sun really should revolve around the earth. And the problem is it doesn't work. Because reality isn't set up like that. You know this. So if you try and live like that, you eventually will find that things fall apart. Now this is the burden of the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been working through this book for a couple of months. What a strange book. Somebody's described it as the Bible's resident alien. It is wisdom literature, but its message sounds very wild and strange at times. Sometimes it sounds like the teacher, the writer, really doesn't believe anymore. But he's actually using that as a way to show us wisdom. We've seen the teacher exploring all the different pathways that human beings use to find meaning and satisfaction and purpose in life. He's tested those pathways by exploring them to the limit. And he declares that life under the sun is meaningless. Meaningless. This word, the Hebrew word hevel, literally means a breath. Something transient, empty and impossible to control, all rolled into one. He's seen through it all. Education and knowledge, power and privilege, pleasure and fun, great wealth and great projects. Again and again, he weighs these things. He pushes them to the limit. And then he says they are just breath, meaningless. And here in chapter 12, he ties the whole thing up in verse 8. And he repeats what he said at the start. Here it is. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless or utter 
breath. But is that it? Is it really all meaningless? A cosmic joke? Not at all. We've seen again and again that this is a strategy to make us think again, to wake us up from deluded fantasies of life. There's life under the sun, which means life with God subtracted. It's a kind of a theological shock therapy. He's trying to wake us up to see things as they really are and to live under heaven, which is with God in charge, with God at the centre and in God's reality. And here in chapter 12, as we finish the series, we find the teacher tying together all the different strands of the book with a simple but very profound message. And I'll say that message in a moment, but first of all, just to say, you may have noticed we've skipped from chapter 5 through to chapter 12 with apologies. Because of scheduling and special services, we weren't able to do uh, all the chapters, but please do take the time to read through for yourselves. Chapter 12, then, at the very end, uh, gives us two big points. Remember and revere. Remember and revere. Remember your creator and revere God because this is actually how it is to be truly human. And everything in your life really does matter. In other words, God is the sun and we are the little planets orbiting around him. So let's make sure our lives really do revolve around him. Firstly, remember. Verses 1 to 8. Remember your creator. Look with me there on page 679, please. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. (coughs) Now this week I uh, joined the ranks of many thousands of parents all around this country and took my oldest son to a university open day. This now I realise is going to be our life for the next few months. Driving Will to different locations around the UK and uh, looking at universities. We were shown around a college by a young student. We were taken into different lectures and told about student life and finances and the student experience. And Will went to a a, a sample lecture uh, from the English department. And we went into this town which was flooded with students and their parents, or prospective students. And I have never seen so many parent and child pairings in one go before. Uh, It was really interesting. We were shown around in a large group, and you could see there's the dad and and the son, or there's the mum and the daughter, and you could see all these pairings going around together. We're in this big group. So it was a chance to observe, and it was very, very striking to see the resemblance between the parent and the child separated by a mere 30 to 40 years. What do you notice when you stand a 17-year-old woman side by side with her 47-year-old mum? What do you notice? Some things are quite similar. You know, that's where she got that nose from. They're roughly the same height. You can see the face shape. But some things are quite different because time takes a toll. I don't want to be rude. Even on the parents who've clearly taken quite good care of themselves. Even on those lucky few who inherited good genes and they started out handsome. Time takes a toll. And for many of us, the years have not been kind. 
Do I have to explain what that looks like? Just imagine if we could stand not just two, but three generations side by side. The 17-year-old, the 47-year-old, and the 77-year-old. What about four generations? I was at a conference recently and heard a, a church... Uh, consultant speak about going to help a church revitalise in Cornwall and he met two members of the leadership team. They were a father and son. The father was 104. (laughs) Imagine these standing side by side what you would see. At one point I whispered to my 17 year old son look around at these people. You should realise that this is what you're going to look like in 30 years time and you've got no choice in the matter. This is why cosmetic surgery exists and why it's so expensive. Who doesn't want to reverse the effects of time? How is it that actors and celebrities look so good? Money. You know, the only honest honest one is Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton said, if I see something sagging, bagging or dragging, I'll get it nipped, tucked or sucked. (laughs) Now, This first half of Ecclesiastes 12 is a a poem and it is a haunting one because it shows the waning of human life and it shows us the inevitability of ageing and it shows us that death comes to us all. But it does so with poetry so that it can make it all the more powerful and vivid. Let's just walk through it. Verse uh, 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark... And the clouds return after the rain. There's a sense here that things go dark. There's an undoing of creation. It's like nature is being reversed. How is it here that the clouds come back after the rain? Surely the clouds should go and have a clear sky. It's showing us the personal impact of ageing. Things go dark. The storm rolls in and the clouds continue to blanket the sky even after the rain has fallen. Maybe because of dimmed eyesight. All these things actually echo the creation story back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And the language of them going dark is like an unmaking of creation. A reversal of what God put together. It now starts to come apart. Just as God made every person, at the end, every person is unmade. Derek Kidner is a very fine Bible scholar says all this will come at a stage when there's no longer the resilience of youth or the prospect of recovery to offset it. In one's early years and in the greater part of life, troubles and illnesses are chiefly setbacks, not disasters. One expects the sky to clear eventually. It is hard to adjust to the closing of that chapter to know that now, in the final stretch, There will be no improvement. The clouds will always gather again. And time will no longer heal, but kill. Verses 3 and 4 continue. When the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim. There's an image here, a mixture of uh, images of, of a house. But you can tell what's underneath it. The house is growing old and decrepit, but these are poetic ways of talking about our bodies, aren't they? The keepers of the house, the hands, the thing that can protect you, 
the thing that uh, is linked to your big guns, the thing that you can, you can manage life with. Once they were strong, now they're growing limp and beginning to tremble. The hands go weak. The strong men, the legs that have carried you around for all these years are now no longer able to bear their own weight. The grinders cease because they are few. What do you think they are? Your teeth, now not grinding so much because they're very few and appetite decreases. Those looking out through the windows, what's going on there? These are the eyes. Things grow dim. Sight grows dim over time. You can't avoid it. One day, we will all wear glasses. Came to me this year. And a prescription will only grow stronger and stronger until sight is gone. It says here that the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. The ears start to lose their power and gradually fail to hear perfectly and it gets dimmer and dimmer, losing our powers, losing our faculties. It's a sad picture of something that's coming to all of us. It's inevitable. After the Second World War, many of the great country houses, the great aristocratic houses in, in this country, were left to rack and ruin because their owners had been bankrupted by the two world wars and could not, no longer afford to maintain them. John Harris uh, was a young man. He called himself a country house snooper. And he got old maps and he went and found these places hidden in the woods. And he went off the beaten track to find these great houses in decline and photographed them as they crumbled into the dust published a remarkable book called No Voice from the Hall with some poignant pictures of places that once had been beautiful but now were tumbling down. Ecclesiastes says we're all like that. Just as a once grand and beautiful house will decline slowly, so will you and I. What's the effect on that for us psychologically? Verse 4 and 5 continue. Um, People rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. See, peace is disturbed here. Fear comes in. People rise up at the sound of birds. They're easily woken. You know, the older you get, the worse your sleep becomes. Any older people want to give an amen to that? (laughs) No one sleeps like a baby sleeps, do they? I mean, I'm just blown away seeing these babies around the church. Wherever they want to go to sleep, off they go. They're just they're hanging off someone's shoulder or lying in a buggy, arms like this. Sound asleep, you could do anything you like, you can't wake them up. When they want to sleep, they sleep. You will never sleep like that again, unless you're drugged. And the older you get with the cares of life and the anxiety, oh my, how many of us now are waking up every night? And I don't just mean to go to the loo, but you need to do that as well. More times every night as you get older. Now, there's a perverse irony here because even while you rise up at the sound of a bird, at the same time, all the songs are growing faint. That's tragic. Your sleep is so light that the sound of a bird can wake you up, and yet the songs are growing faint at the same time. And look what happens with the decline of powers. It says in verse um, 5, people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets. Fear comes in. How could it not? My wife and I have been surprised to see our parents, who are now in their 70s, once very confident, highly competent men and women, lose their confidence in their mid-70s. But why should we be surprised? 
When your powers go, so does your confidence. Verse 5 basically says we become afraid in every direction. The heights and the streets. You know, uh, my children, my, my youngest son was swinging, playing football in the church last week, swinging on a goal post and managed to let himself go and headbutt the concrete uh, playground. Split his eye open and took him to hospital. You know what? He bounced back in about two or three days. Some of you older saints, how would a fall like that feel? It's very frightening, isn't it? Because the powers are declining. And a fall could be, could be it. We become afraid. Now, the middle of this verse is really, verse 5, is hard to ex- explain. The almond tree blossoms... The grasshopper drags itself along. Desire no longer is stirred. The sense seems to be that nature itself has cycles of growth and decline, blossom and decay, and that we are not exempt from it because we too will all decline and depart from that cycle. And then we will go, it says, uh, to our eternal home and mourners will go about the streets. One day you will be a memory Well, that's a cheerful thought for Sunday morning, isn't it? What is the point of all this? Why is he bringing out the ravages of age in such a graphic way? Actually, it's because it's vital for us to hear this. It is vital for us to hear this. There is no more important message that you could hear this morning. And you won't hear it anywhere else. You certainly won't hear it in Western culture which is death-denying, denial about death. We live in a fantasy world of eternal youth. We can't even talk about death, certainly not look at it. We need to realise it's coming, you're ageing. You know, we are all time travellers, but we can only travel in one direction. And here's the big takeaway. This is why he's telling us all this. Remember your creator while you still can before it's too late. This command to remember is so important that he repeats it twice at the start and toward the end of the poem. Verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your youth, in your prime. He's really saying, remember your creator now. Remember him while you still can. Remember him today. Don't think you can put God off until old age because you might leave it too late. And don't fool yourself into thinking, I'll have fun doing my own thing now and come back to God in later life. Because the whole Bible shows that we were made for God and life without him is actually a living death. Remember him while you still can. This is the point of verses 6 and 7. Remember him, it says, before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. Beautiful images. What do they mean? The golden bowl may be an image of a lamp. It's beautiful. It's hanging there. It's giving light to all around, but it's held by the silver cord, and one day it will snap and break. The bowl will smash, and the light will go out, and all will be dark again. The picture at the spring, the wheel of the well, these are images of drawing water. We come back to the well, we drink water, life is revived and refreshed, we're renewed, but one day the pitcher will break and we will no longer be able to draw that life-giving water. Light, water, two very common biblical images for life. 
He's saying that life will run out. Remember those old antique hourglasses? You know, they have, they're made of glass and in the middle they have a, a thin part and one side's got sand in it. You turn it over and it, the sand starts to trickle down. And you can, you can time things with them. We have this expression, the sands of time. Maybe a bit cliched, but it points us to the fact that our time is limited. It's limited in duration. It's running down. We don't how much time have you got left? No one knows. So don't be a fool. Remember your creator while you still have time. Because time is running low. And this is especially important for young people who think they are invincible. Don't you? Any teenagers here? Anyone in their early 20s? You actually feel invincible. You're not. Old age will creep up unawares. It's just around the corner. Can you hear the whistle of the train? Terry Pratchett said, inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. (laughs) It's true. Inside every old person is a young person just wondering what happened. Philosopher Jacques Ellul wrote, you may consider yourself autonomous, but you are incapable of knowing what should be done. Incapable of knowing what wisdom is. You are a creature. Our problems do not stem from our failure to stay in the Garden of Eden. All the evils, he says, and I choose my words carefully, all the evils of the world stem from our taking ourselves to be the creator. We're not. We're just a little planet. We need to revolve around the sun. Remember him. Remember him while you still can. Okay. Some of you are saying, I think I've got the point now. I see the need to get my planet revolving around the true sun. I accept that life is short and I'm small and God is great. But what does it actually look like? What does it mean to remember your creator? The answer is given us in the second half of this chapter, verses 9 to 14, which teach us how to revere God, how to revere him. So we're going from remember your creator through to revere God. And we find here that this is the path to true life. Verses 9 to 14. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words. And what he wrote was upright and true. Here we have the conclusion of the whole book. And it ties it all together. And we can summarise the teaching of this part, these, what it means to remember God and to revere him in your life in, with three words, all beginning with P. Firstly, pain. Secondly, perspective. And thirdly, preparation. Pain, perspective and preparation. Pain. Look with me at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. How does God speak to us? How does he speak? Through the Bible. Through his word. The word of the Lord. Given by one shepherd. Ultimately the Bible, and all its wisdom, is, comes from God himself. He is the one shepherd. And here, the teacher gives us two Images 
of what this, how this word functions, and they are both quite painful. Okay, ready for this? The first is a goad, and the second is nails. Now, what's a goad? I suspect you don't use one in your everyday life. Matt doesn't use one as an underwriter, although maybe he does in some ways. A goad is a bit like an ancient cattle prod. It's something that could be used like a big stick to prod animals. Sometimes it might have a few sharp bits to prod them and make sure the animals kept going on the right path. So if you had your sheep or your cattle, you could prod them with the goad and the goad gets us back on track. If we're straying, the goad, the shepherd or the cow herd will bring the, the, the creatures back in line and get them back on track with the goads, moving them along, directing their course. Secondly, nails. What are nails used for? Nails hold things in place. They keep them firm. You know, our lives are flying around, floating around, things are going on all the time, it feels like it's complete chaos. We're going from here, there, to here. The the nail holds things in place, gives it stability, security, but for a nail to do its job, it has to penetrate. It has to go in. It has to go deep. And he says that the words, the words of God, are like goats and like firmly embedded nails. They're in there. And this is how God's word functions in our lives, if we will let it. God's word is a goad to you and a nail. It's a goad to show you where you're going off track and prod you to get back onto it. And it's a nail that goes in deep and makes the truth stick. David Gibson, I've quoted before in this series, says, You will know that you know God when sometimes what he says makes you weep as he humbles you. He humbles your pride. When he reverses your expectations, upsets your priorities, offends your behaviour, challenges your thinking. Do you know God like that? Do you know God in such a way that when he speaks to you in his word, by the way you have to be reading it in order for him to speak to you through it, obviously, And when you read something that challenges you, offends you, upsets your priorities, you let it go in deep. It might upset you, but if you let it, it will change you because it is the word of the living God. Some people have compared this to the Stepford Wives. Remember that film? I think it's been made a couple of times now. This this town of Stepford where the men somehow had managed to concoct these female robots that looked just like their wives, but they never answered back. They just went around perfectly cooking and wearing pinnies and making homemade brownies and saying yes to whatever the husband's asked for. And it's a kind of male fantasy of the the wife who doesn't challenge you, doesn't make life difficult. Some men are smirking here. It It wouldn't be good, because if you don't have someone who can answer you back, you don't have a relationship. You just have a robot. And the God of the Bible is not a robot. He's not a Stepford God. He answers us back. He's the one who tells us how it should be. His word is like goads and nails, but they're things that will keep us on the right path and hold our lives in place. So if we want to remember our Creator, revere our God, the first thing is to let his word speak to us painfully and deeply. Secondly, it gives us perspective. Look with me at verse 13. Perspective. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. 
Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Why would we let the Bible speak to us and pierce our hearts like a goad or a nail? Because of this perspective here, this is the conclusion of the whole book. We've got to fear God, keep his commandments, because this is the duty of all mankind. Actually, that's an unhelpful translation. What it literally says is, for this is all mankind. For this is the whole of humanity. This is all of humanity. This isn't your duty. This is just you. This is what it means to be truly human. What we were made for is to know God, fear him, glorify him, and enjoy him. Have you ever seen a fish pulled out of water and left on the land? You've seen it flipping and twisting and gasping, choking because it's out of its environment. Or a bird flying beautifully, soaring in the air, but put that bird into the water. Its feathers wet, the bird's under the water, it's gasping and drowning and it's struggling, it can't fly, it's, it's out of its environment. Like the fish, like the bird, human beings need God as their environment to swim or to soar and fly. We were made for him, we were made to know him, we were made for our lives to revolve around him. And without that, we're like planets that are just cast off, spinning out of control. Or like the bird or the fish. We need to fear God, he says, and keep his commandments. What is this fear? A very old writer called Charles Bridges said, This fear is that affectionate reverence by which a child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Affectionate reverence. Full of love. Full of affection. Loving God, but also full of honour and respect because God is the great one. Let me ask you, is this how you see God? Is this how you relate to him? With both affection and reverence. See, in a room this size with this many people, there will be some people who, who can't relate to God at the moment out of affection because you're just, you don't see him as someone that you could love. He's just distant. Maybe you think he's hostile. Maybe you think he's not interested. You just see God as out there. You, you, you understand that God is holy. You understand that God is transcendent. You, you see God as great, but you, you don't see him as near. You, don't, you couldn't possibly believe that God loves you. The idea that God is actively interested in you. God delight, would delight over you in Jesus. To you is too far away. The fear of the Lord is that this God is to be one that we love and we relate to with affection. But there are others who, who are, if you like, the pendulum has swung too far the other way. And it's that you see God as a buddy. God is a mate. You can't really relate to him as the great one, the one, the Lord of everything and therefore the Lord of your life. God's been kind of brought down to your level and made, made to be your personal assistant. That's not the fear of the Lord. It's way too casual. Well, this comment brings together both of these things. The fear of the Lord, the affectionate reverence, that we relate to him like that, that we come to know him like that. So we're opening our lives to pain here and to a new perspective 
that God is the one we fear. And that's good for us. It's all humanity. It's the way to flourish. So we should fear God because of who he is and because of who we are. But also because judgment is coming. And this is where we end with the third P, preparation, which is what life is. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. God will bring everything into judgment. I wonder if you've ever had one of those dreams where you're dreaming about being in a, in a high-pressure situation and you're not ready. Students often have these about exams. People have them about job interviews. Pastors have dreams about going into a church meeting and not having a sermon ready. I had a very vivid dream about two months ago. In the dream, I was in the church building, Holy Trinity Platt, not too far from here, and we were singing a hymn. And during this hymn, somebody nudged me and said, are you ready for the funeral? And I realised in the shock that I was supposed to be leading the funeral and I was completely unprepared. I was just singing away in the hymn. And in this dream, I started to feel panic. And I start to look around the room. And I see over in the corner, there's Pete Horlock. This dream really happened, by the way. There's Pete Horlock. He's a real vicar. He knows how to do funerals. I've got to get to him and get the funeral book. So in the dream, I'm trying to get through, but all these people are singing. They're in the way, and I can't get to him. Eventually, I fight my way through, and I get to him. And he says, yeah, you need, you need one of the blue books. It's over on that side of the church. So I'm, I'm trying to get through to the other side. And all the while, the hymn's about to finish, and they're going to give me the microphone. I'm going to be there, and I won't have anything to say. And it's a funeral. Complete panic. I woke up and needed the loo. <laughs> dreams. I wasn't ready. Many people have such dreams, but what about those who walk through life and are unready for the most important test of all? The most significant moment of all, the moment when you face God and have to give an account for your life. Are you ready for that? Verse 14 is absolutely terrifying, isn't it? God will bring every deed out to be assessed, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Once God's light shines on your life, there are no secrets left. It is absolutely terrifying. And it should make us tremble. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? What would he think of my life? What about yours? You think the good things are going to outweigh the bad? Think again. Facing a terrible judgment. Are you ready for that? But there is light and joy even here. Because Of Jesus Christ. You know, at the cross of Jesus, God exposed every hidden thing, good or evil. And for those who believe and trust in Jesus, the penalty has been paid so that there is now no judgment left for you and me. If we trust him, if we follow him. You see, at the cross, Jesus took upon himself a fearsome judgment, so fearsome that in the end he cried out, It is finished. He'd absorbed it all. He'd drunk the cup down to the dregs. You see a fearsome judgment. 
so terrifying that the earth shakes and the sky goes dark, even creation can't look on the cross of Jesus Christ as he takes upon himself the wrath due to the sins of a whole humanity. And yet, that same cross is a picture of fierce love. Fierce love. A love and affection so great that he took upon himself the judgment you deserved and gives you freedom and forgiveness. So, Christian friends here, let's live as those set free. Let's live as those set free from sin who are slaves to righteousness, who are grateful for all that he's done for us. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Phillips Brooks is an old writer many years ago said, duty makes us do things well, but love makes us do them beautifully. How are you living, Christian friend? Are you living just out of doing your, trying to do your duty? Duty makes us do things well. But love, love for God makes us do things beautifully. So let me ask in closing, is there an area of your life right now that you need to submit to God and start obeying him? You know what it is. Will you let him have his way in your life? Is there an area of your life right now that you know you need to submit to God and start obeying him? Fear God. Keep his commandments because this is all of human life. These final words of Ecclesiastes are written to make us stop. To make us take stock while we still can. To make us tremble. To think where we stand before our, our holy God. But also in light of the New Testament, in light of the Lord Jesus Christ, to rejoice because we've heard the great good tidings that makes us sing and skip and dance.